week I talked about the fact that the Ten Commandments were in force and effect and demonstrated that from many scriptures prior to Exodus 20. There have been many hundreds of sermons preached with the following scriptures. Some years ago, a Dr. DeHaan, whose son is now on his television program, wrote a series of small booklets. He and many others attacked my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, and the Worldwide Church of God, nay, Radio Church of God, because of our observance of the Ten Commandments, because of things like the weekly Sabbath and tithing and annual holy days and what was being mentioned in the sermonette about leavening and unleavened bread and foot washing and the Passover and all of these things that they looked upon as bondage. If you will turn to the following three scriptures, let me illustrate the way some of those booklets and sermons usually went. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Dear reader, he said, there are good, sincere Christians out here trying to get saved by works. Why, it's not of works. We need to pity those poor Christians who are trying to do it on their own, who are trying to get saved by works. And it says right here, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't earn salvation. The Bible very clearly says it's through grace and faith. And that's the way you're saved. Galatians, the second chapter, and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And also in Galatians 3 and verse 10, For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. Why, it's a curse to be under the works of the law. The Bible says so. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now these and a few other scriptures, together with a couple more that I want to read, were very, very strong and potent medicine for people who simply did not know the Bible. People who didn't know the rules of Bible study. People who always seemed to assume that ambiguity is always settled in favor of prejudice and seemed to turn biblical principles upside down and backward so that they seem to assume that a questionable text is always to be interpreted depending upon whatever your church believes, but is not to be interpreted based upon what all of the other very, very plain and simple scriptures say. One primary point, either the Bible is the Word of God and one scripture cannot ever contradict another scripture, or we are wasting our time here today, isn't that right? Because the whole concept of us being Christian and wanting to be in God's kingdom and believing in Jesus Christ would found to be a lie. If you cannot trust the Bible as the word of God, then you can't trust God. So what we say is that the Bible in its original manuscripts, as closely as we can determine what those are, and there are vast theological libraries that give us all sorts of helps. People once in a while will come and ask me, what Bible do you use and what Bible do you recommend? And I say, I would recommend the King James. And with it, an RSV, Revised American Standard perhaps, and with that, perhaps a James Moffat for the Old Testament because of its lucidity and its ease of reading, especially in some of the prophets. But you don't depend on any one of those three without comparing all three. And if you want to delve into it, you get a diaglot or a polyglot, glot rather, or the Greek interlinear, or uh, perhaps uh, Thayer's lexicon or a Strong's concordance and some of the other Bible helps like the Angus Bible Handbook and certainly a companion Bible is very helpful. And you try to determine what are some of the original words and what are some of the meanings of some of the words and verses and to see these scriptures in context. By whom were they written? When? To whom? What was the background? What was the problem? What was he trying to get across? And use the rules of Bible study. A very plain, unambiguous scripture, impossible to be misinterpreted or misunderstood, must interpret an ambiguous, vague, puzzling scripture. The Apostle Peter wrote of Paul's writings that Paul wrote many things that are very hard to be understood, which those who are unstable rest or twist to their own destruction. Now, let me just tell you a mind-blowing principle many people do not understand. God only had one choice. Make the Bible so puzzling 
so confusing, so deliberately in a blur, so that people could be deceived or kill all mankind at the foot of the mountain when he gave his law. He only had that choice. Because man, with his stiff neck and his rebellion, would not obey God from the very beginning. Not in the Garden of Eden and not at any time since that era to our modern day. Once in a great while, God found one man who would follow his law, and we see all the patriarchs from the time of Adam and down through Seth and down through some of those who were mentioned prior to the flood and down to the time of Noah, who alone in his generation was found a righteous man walking in all the laws of God with perhaps, as I've said, billions of other people, certainly hundreds of millions, if not a couple of billion or more, who were drowned by the flood, and every one of them were completely unrighteous and breaking God's laws. So God deliberately confused his word. He says so. He says it must be line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And he has actually said that he spoke, Jesus said in the 13th chapter of Matthew, in parables that hearing they should not hear and seeing they should not understand, lest they be converted and I should heal them. Shocking scripture that many people cannot understand. He's saying, I spoke in puzzling, confusing analogies, similes, parables, so they couldn't understand. Why? Because, it says in the 11th chapter of Romans, he hath concluded them in unbelief that he might ultimately have mercy on them all. A deceived person can be a person of good character. He is not defiling his character. He honestly believes something that is wrong. He's deceived. Many professing Christians misinterpret that word, and they criticize and condemn a deceived person. It's a metamorphosis that began to occur to people when they first came into the church and began to get very, very righteous and begin to argue their own family members and beloved friends into the truth. I got into a clash of swords with my sister and just about alienated her for many, many years trying to cram my religion down her throat. She was deceived. Now the blinders had been taken off of my eyes. And I saw clearly, and I began to study and to prove things. And so, as I began to see some of these things about what I ought to eat and how I ought to live and God's Word, and I was making big red underlines in my Bible and wore out several of them, I told my sister Dottie all about it. I may as well have been speaking to a Greek or speaking to a wall or a pillar or a post. I may as well have been speaking in Iranian or something. She did not understand a word I said. And it simply came to anger and spiteful words and a complete breaking of relationships that lasted for some few years. Now, finally, of course, I was the one that had to come to understand that I had been in the wrong and I needed to reconcile with my sister. She is still, to this day, deceived. And yet we are very, very close and have a wonderful relationship and visit each other every year. But she's still deceived. But you see, she has not defiled her character because she has not gone back on what she herself believes if you believe something firmly and then do the opposite, you're a terrible, evil character. But if you believe something wrongly, even though you're in error, and you live according to it, you have not defiled your character. And many newly begotten baptized Christians tend to look down their nose on people who are merely deceived, and they feel superior to them. One other scripture that is very important that they continually use to try to do away with annual holy days is found in Colossians, the second chapter, in verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. How many booklets can you pick up in a Baptist Bible bookstore that tell you that the Ten Commandments are done away? Now, I have never seen a single one of those pamphlets, nor have I ever heard a single sermon that detailed for me what is really wrong with God's law, and neither of you. You've never heard such a thing. There has never been a pastor, I think, in all the years that I've heard God's law basically done away, no longer required, not necessary. That's legalism. You're trying to get saved by works. And all of their arguments with these particular scriptures, and these are the most salient points of all the New Testament used by preachers who try to do away with God's law. But I have never yet heard them take the Ten Commandments one by one and show you what's wrong with the first one, what's wrong with the second one, what's wrong with the third one, what's wrong with the... Wait a minute. Uh, well, 
they do now and then take issue with the fourth one, don't they? But they don't take issue with the fifth, or sixth, or seventh, or eighth, or ninth, or tenth. But the only issue they really take with the fourth one is they say, oh, it's still extant. It's still a good suggestion. You know, they've watered it down to the ten suggestions. But it's just that now Sunday is the day that we Christians observe because the Jews observed Sabbath and Christ set himself against the rigors of the seventh-day Sabbath and the Christians began celebrating his resurrection, remembering his resurrection since the old Jewish law was done away. And, of course, that day is Sunday, the day that he rose from the dead. Not true. You can prove that he rose on a late Saturday afternoon, but that's their argument. So I've never heard a powerful sermon against law-keeping, against the points, the cardinal points of the Ten Commandments of God's law. I've heard red documents against tithing, against clean and unclean meats, against annual holy days. One very large, very fine church organization, the Church of God's Seventh Day, with very fine brethren and very wonderful converted, uh, I think, Christian people are deceived on that particular point. What that's going to cost them in terms of their character is their problem, not mine. I'm not here to judge them. They are blinded by their leaders who have refused to accept the annual holy days, but they do accept the weekly Sabbath. The Seventh-day Baptists are the same. They accept the Seventh-day Sabbath, but not the annual holy days, to my knowledge. So let's go as we see the Ethiopian eunuch puzzling over a particular scripture, and Philip did not start at Genesis, and he didn't turn somewhere else. He began, quote, at that scripture, and expounded unto him more perfectly the truth. So let's go back to our very first scripture in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, and let's just see what it does say and what it does not say. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. I was amazed because this is one of the very first times in my life that I had actually taken a piece of paper that was a little booklet written against my father and his religion by another pastor who was a Sunday-keeping radio and television preacher. And in his little booklet he quoted this scripture, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, period. Dear reader, do you see that it's not of works, and there are no works to salvation? lest any man should brag and boast that he had earned salvation for himself. But my father, when he quoted the scripture, he went on in context and quoted the entire thing. And when I compared what my father had written with what Dr. DeHaan had written, my father went on to quote this, For we are his workmanship, that is, he's the creator, and we're the design of his hands, created in Christ Jesus, and he expounded that, the new creature in Christ the change that comes over your heart and mind when you're converted, the fact that you give yourself to Almighty God and Christ comes to take up residence spiritually inside your very brain and your being, and you become a Christian because Christ is living his life over again inside of you. The new creature in Christ is what is being spoken of here. Created in Christ Jesus is a spiritual term, the new precious little spirit being begotten in your frontal lobes of your brain where the spirit of man ignites or unites with the spirit of God and they too make a new spiritual creature in Christ, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Same word, ergon, deeds, labors, performance, works, accomplishments which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. My father quoted it all. And I was left in those early years, 1952 and 3, with a decision. Was my father being faithful to the Bible and telling it really the way the Bible was, or was Dr. Dion? Why did he put a period there and then argue from a completely opposite point of view when just going on and reading the next two scriptures, it would have knocked everything he was trying to say into a cocked hat? and giving you the complete view of the entire passage. Now let's go back at verse 8 and 9 and see if we can understand it. By grace, definition. Anyone here know what grace is? Of course you do. Unmerited pardon. Undeserved, unearned forgiveness. A presidential pardon is grace. The man may be guilty, and the president pardons him. I think every Christmas time the president lets some criminal out or go free. And of course we know that... Uh, other people have been pardoned, like Nixon, by Jerry Ford when he got into the presidency. And many people are expecting that Colonel North is going to be pardoned by Reagan before he leaves office. So a pardon is unmerited, undeserved, unpaid for, unearned pardon. That's grace. That's just a free gift. Are you saved that way? Of course you are. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. For God so loved the world, meaning the sin-filled, rotten, egocentric, criminal world, that he gave his only begotten Son. So by grace, by God's mercy, are you saved through faith. Your faith mixed with his faith. Faith with faith. The faith of Christ in you as well as your faith toward Christ. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. No. You can't whip it up. You cannot create it. You can't just kind of set your mind in a certain way and suddenly be healed. I know because you've tried it and I've tried it. We've tried to kind of get close to God with a kind of a mindset. We've wanted something so badly we've prayed for it and kind of tried to get righteous. We've all tried that. I remember a man who went on a fast and lost about so many pounds because he wanted his daughter to be healed. And God was not impressed. People get those ideas. Father, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And God doesn't bargain. You simply cannot earn it. So even that faith, it says here, is not of yourself. You don't stir it up, whip it up, buy it, produce it, get a mindset, and suddenly have it. It, even that faith, is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, the clincher. You cannot be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly in the letter and the Spirit if you were to live 100 lifetimes of 100 years apiece. You would still be a sinner prior to that time, and in every day, in some way or another, you would slip and fall and stumble and err and make a mistake, and you would sin, even if you tried. And if you could keep them perfectly, you still would not earn salvation, because salvation cannot be earned. It is God's free, loving gift. There's nothing contradictory in those scriptures. But you see, to the uninitiated, as Christ said, they be blind leaders of the blind. Let them alone. If the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall into the ditch. If you go to darkest Africa and West Togoland and search a gorillas with a 12-gauge, maybe a five-shot magazine with great big huge slugs in them, which is the way they hunt those great beasts, and they should never kill one, in my opinion, and you get into the very darkest rainforest with a guide, that guide may only know a very few trails. There's no way he knows every bit of that vast rainforest. If he gets ten yards off that trail, he may be just as lost as you are. But he knows the trails, and he sticks to the trails. And that's the way some of these preachers coming out of the seminaries are. They know these scriptures that I read to you. And as long as they stick to them and don't read the next ones beyond them, or the ones before them, or other scriptures that seem to contradict them, they can be blind guides leading other people who are just as illiterate and just as ignorant of the Bible as they are of how to wire a television you know, set or repair a telephone switchboard. They just know nothing about it. So they sit there and they listen to the so-called Holy Joe, the professional, the sky pilot. He's been to the seminary. He's supposed to know. He's a blind guide. He just sticks to the trail. He goes from Ephesians 2 to Colossians 4 to Galatians 3. And as long as he's very, very careful to stick to these scriptures that seem to do away with law-keeping, the people sit there, well, that's right. I don't need to keep the Sabbath. I don't need to tithe. I don't need to worry about clean and unclean meats. There's nothing I must do. Christ did it all for me. And it sounds so wonderful. It's such an easy religion. So is Catholicism. A few laps around the rosary and it's all taken care of. Well, let's go to the other one we read, Galatians 3 and verse 10 and 11. Galatians 3 and verse 10 and 11. For as many are as are of the works of the law, Greek word ergon, are under the curse. What is the curse of the law? It says very clearly, the curse of the law is death. A curse is death. Your life is forfeit. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continues not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, wait a minute. Let's understand that. It does not say, Cursed is everyone who continues to do everything written in the book of the law. It says, Cursed is everyone who continues not to do everything written in the book of the law. What is the book of the law? Well, the word book means what it says. The book of the law, about the law, containing the law, is the Torah. And the Torah consists of five scrolls. And the five scrolls are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the book of the law includes, more incisively, those few chapters after the 20th chapter of Exodus and the book of Leviticus that has to do with the added restrictions in addition to the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. We'll see a little bit more about that later. 
The book of the law and the Decalogue are distinctly different. The Decalogue is contained within the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and it is reiterated twice. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. doesn't depend upon being in the book of the law because it was originally given. Almighty God gave it orally. He gave it to people such as Mo, uh, Moses, or before that Abraham, and before that Noah, and before that Seth, and before that Adam, which we demonstrated last week. And when he finally wrote with his own finger in stone, he didn't bring the law into existence at that point. It was the expression of his eternal character, which had been in existence from before Eden. But he codified it. Now, the book of the law was written with pen and ink, so to speak, on vellum or papyrus, and rolled up in scrolls. And the original was carried in the ark, in the side of it, and inside of the ark, under the mercy seat, were the tablets along with a little omer of stone, probably a beautiful alabaster or something that contained a little sample of manna, and of course together with the rod that Aaron uh, carried in the miracles before Pharaoh and which budded. And so that was a very sacred seat, as it were, almost like a symbol of God's throne that was carried about by the Levites, in which was the Decalogue inside and the book of the law on the outside. But no man is justified by the law, already explained, of course not, even if you kept it perfectly. In the sight of God is evident for, quote, the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. And, quote, the man that doeth them shall live in them. Ah, wait a minute. What is that saying? How do you read that? You know the way most people read that? Well, the man that doeth them is going to have to live in them. Blast it all. That's, that's the way they read that. But that's wrong. That isn't what it says. It says the man that does them is going to benefit by them. It says the man that does them is going to profit by them. It says the man that does them is going to live by them. If you want the original, simply look in the margin. Go back to Leviticus 18 and verse 5. Let's do that right quickly. Leviticus 18, 5, and I'll keep my place there and just see what that says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the eternal. So it's conveying a blessing. I made a point, and I think it's absolutely true. Any nation that today would embrace all the terms and conditions of the old covenant, some little third world country, I don't know if you're talking about Nicaragua or Iran, and would suddenly begin sociologically, economically, in every stratum of their society, to apply the statutes and the commandments of God, even if they reverted back to sacrifices, do you know that there are such automatic blessings built in to the laws about health and diet and cleanliness and marriage and inheritances and landmarks and how to conduct business and cattle and so on, that they would rapidly become one of the most blessed, prosperous nations on the face of the earth? simply because there are natural laws at work in addition to the spiritual laws of Almighty God. So if a man did those statutes and judgments, which are the additional laws that had to do with the society of Israel, and not just the Ten Commandments, but basically were extrapolations of or applications of the Ten Commandments applied to life in an agrarian society, they were blessed, which if a man do, he shall live in them. Verse 13 of the third chapter of Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yes, because the curse is the penalty, and the penalty is death, and all of sin and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And that is the curse of the law, being made a curse, or death, for us. He died for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith already explained. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man can change it or add to two people who make an agreement, shake hands, put a signature on a piece of paper. Nobody else has the power to alter it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He didn't say it's to seeds, it's to many, but it's to one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant, and that is the covenant made between God and Abraham of eternal possession of the land and of the Messiah who was to come through his progeny, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, now which law are we talking about, which was 430 years after, after the confirmation of the promises, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. We're dealing with the book of the law, something that was added. Let's notice. 
For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. No, it's something that is earned. But God promised Abraham eternal salvation. And Abraham obeyed God and believed God. And we read in Genesis 26 and verse 5, Because that Abraham has obeyed my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, God said, he had made the promise unconditional. Now, a little technical point. It's very easy to understand. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Wherefore then serveth the stop sign on your corner? It was added because of traffic accidents which involved pedestrian death. Was it against the law for someone to kill a pedestrian in your intersection? Why, of course. But they added a stop sign. From now on, you've got to stop. Now, let's go to Romans 4.15, but keep your place in Galatians 3. And look at a principle. Romans 4.15, back before 1 Corinthians, of course, right after the book of Acts. An absolute ironclad principle of the Word of God. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. If I had a blackboard, I would draw the large bone of your leg below your knee, perhaps, or the larger one, perhaps it's just one bone, would be the, the thigh bone, let's say, instead of the other ones where there are two. And I would show you that that is analogous to the Ten Commandments, existing from long before Sinai, and we proved that already, clear back prior to the Garden of Eden and all the way down to the time of Jesus Christ. But God's people were breaking that law. So you have a break. And what you do is you set the break, and then you put a very heavy splint, and you wrap tape all around it to hold that break in place. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions. Then we're dealing with two different laws. Because in order for there to be transgressions, there had to be laws. Where no law is, there is no transgression. Where no stop sign is, you can't get a ticket for running a stop sign. It's that simple. So therefore, which law is the Apostle Paul speaking of? The additional do's and don'ts of Judaism. And if you look at the context of the southern cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, which were all Gentile cities in Asia Minor, with large Gentile populaces, and very small Jewish synagogues, that some of the Jewish converts who were among the Pharisee, Pharisees and Essenes and Sadducees were trying to insist that the religion that Paul and the other apostles were teaching was basically a national religion of the Jewish state. And they were trying to impose circumcision and sacrifices and shaving your head and making a vow and killing a turtle dove or taking fine meal and presenting it into the temple. And they were trying to make those things incumbent upon Gentiles. And Paul, who was preaching to the Gentiles, is saying, that is not necessary. All of that was added to the Ten Commandments because they were breaking God's law. Proof? Plenty of them in many places in the Bible. Let's get a couple of them right quickly. In Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, and verse 22. Jeremiah seven twenty-two. There's one other scripture that says that all of the province of Judea is not sufficient to burn unto me. And Almighty God said, Away with your sacrifices. They're like a noxious odor in my nostrils. Who needs sacrifices? God has told them time and again that he wasn't concerned about sacrifices. Verse 22 of Jeremiah 7, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. No, it was added much later. After Sinai, the only sacrifice that he revealed was the paschal sacrifice. But the entire rituals of morning and evening sacrifice, of weekly sacrifices, of annual sacrifices, of meal and turtle doves and oxen and calves and goats and lambs and so on that later on were administered on a daily basis by the Levites, that was not added until later. I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, do what I tell you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people." and walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Here is God's law that is the most beautiful formula 
for everything every human being has ever wanted. Success in his business, vibrant, powerful, physical health, long, full, happy life, wonderful, happy marriage, sweet, precious, healthy, obedient children, lack of attack from enemies from without, peace and tranquility in the land, lack of taxation, lack of military conscription, good weather, rain in due season, every one of those fantastic blessings promised by getting in harmony with, as it were, nature itself, because God is the author of nature and His laws exemplify nature in harmony and man living in harmony with nature and his fellow creatures, not plundering and exploiting and abusing and polluting and defiling and corrupting and eventually destroying, which man is doing to nature today. And so here is a formula for every kind of success you want, material success as well as emotional and physical and mental and financial success and spiritual success. And man says, away with that. I want to step on it and spit on it and tread it down in the streets. But they really can't get honest enough to define why they feel that way about it. You've never had a Baptist or a Methodist clergyman tell you what's wrong with God's law. But many of them, if you went to their study and said, Pastor, you went over here to Green Acres. You went down here to this Methodist church, or over here to the Church of Christ, and walked in and just sat down. I want to ask you just one question, if you would. I know about a preacher that says that I've got to keep the Ten Commandments, that it's a prerequisite that I need to obey God and keep every one of the Ten Commandments like Christ magnified them in the Son of the Mount. Do I have to do that to be saved? He'd say, Why, my child, whoever told you such a terrible thing why, you don't have to keep the commandments. Let me turn to Ephesians 2. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Let me turn to Galatians 3. He took it out of the way, nailed it to his cross. Here in Colossians 2 and so on. Why, he would quote those very same scriptures and tell you, no, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. And the only one he's really a little nervous about is the fourth one. He doesn't want you to begin asking him about that. All right, back in Galatians, the third chapter. Wherefore then serveth the law, obviously the same law he's talking about in verse 10, the book of the law, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, Christ, to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, and it included the Ten Commandments because it was contained in the Torah or the book of the law. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? The promises were based upon what? Obedience. Obey my voice. God said to Abraham, Walk thou before me, and be thou perfect. And then when Abraham did it, and was tried to the point of an analogy that was almost like God the Father being willing to sacrifice Christ his son, sacrifice him, when Abraham was told to take Isaac and to take him up and actually sacrifice him, and I've gone through that in the booklet, and I won't belabor the point now to what was going through Abraham's mind, saying God can keep his promise, he can resurrect him, he's going to give me another child. The point is that Abraham left and was going to do as God said. And Abraham then was told, Now I know that anything I tell you, you will do. And I know that your obedience is absolutely without any argument. You're, you're not holding anything back. You're willing to go all the way with me. And then he says in Genesis 26, 5, Because Abraham obeyed my commandments and my statutes and my laws, that's why he confirmed the promise. Did Abraham earn it? Of course not. But Abraham had to exemplify character. There were prerequisites. If you were a multimillionaire and you decided to give some poor tramp out here on the streets a new lease on life, and you went out and began peeling off $100 bills, wouldn't you feel a little chagrined if the tramp looked up suspiciously and said, Now look, buddy, just what is it you want from me? And what you're going to do is to give him a job. Give him a place to live. Tell him to shave and take a shower and buy him some new suits and clothes and get cleaned up. You're going to take him down here to the clinic and get him off alcohol and break the habit of being a wino and a street tramp. And you're going to give him some character and a new lease on life and a good job and a future. And what do you require of him? Well, get off the alcohol, clean up, be a decent human being, a law-abiding citizen, and if you're the guy giving him a job, you've got the right to tell him what to do. Isn't it crazy that people think that they're going to reach out here and just take salvation and then just tell God what the terms are? They'll just tell God, just when they get good ready, they'll give him a little obedience now and then, shed a little tear at Christmas time, old little town of Bethlehem, 
The rest of the time, just shut up now. You know, get over there in the corner. Don't bother me, God. I'm, I'm busy doing my thing out here. And that's the way a lot of people live their lives. Is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. If there had been a law given which could have given life, can a law give life? Why, of course not. A law can just point out what is sin and what is righteousness. A law is a road map. It's a road map on which you simply chart your route through life. It's a guide, nothing more. It keeps you from precipices and washed out bridges and cliffs and dark canyons and box canyons and one-way streets. But the law tells you, on the other hand, how to get to your destination. If there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture has concluded all under sin. And what is sin? This audience knows. Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. That's what sin is. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, I want to sh uh, show you in the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians another Scripture that is used time and again. And I want to explain it. Paul is saying, beginning in verse 8, How be it then, remember these are Galatians of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. They are Gentiles. When you, you Gentiles, knew not God, but they were locked in paganism with all their pagan idols, Asclepios and Zeus and Thus and Diana of the Ephesians and Thor and so on, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, the real God, the eternal living creator God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again, you Gentiles, turn back to the weak and beggarly elements? But do you know that there are blind guides who will read that scripture and actually make so-called professing Christians begin to think that the weak and beggarly elements are things like the Sabbath, and tithing, and clean and unclean meats, and the holy days? Have, they, have those ever been called weak and beggarly in your entire Bible? Do you know of any place where the holy laws of God are called weak, where they're called beggarly? These are the elements, rudiments of the world. Whereunto you desire again to be in bondage, bondage to the elements of the world. Now, you were born into a ready-made world, and so was I. But my parents did not obey some of the dictates of the world. They had broken the shackles of Easter. They had broken the shackles of Christmas. They had broken the shackles of observing all the various days, like Halloween and so on, that were virtually incumbent upon all of our society, my entire neighborhood. I wanted to be like the society and like the neighborhood, so of course I... As I said, had my own little Christmas why, by getting the neighbor's tree and decorating it once they threw it away. I was so desperate to want to be like the rest of the world. And you know, because of the peer pressure when you're a child growing up in school and everyone is moving in a certain direction, children, it's time, now they abolish this later on, but I remember very well dancing around the Maypole. It wasn't until after World War II when communism became such a big bugaboo and an enemy of the United States, but I guess little children didn't make May baskets. Any, anybody in this room ever make May baskets? I did in Eugene, Oregon when I was a kid. They'd give it a colored paper and we'd cut it out and weave it out of paper and make a little basket. I didn't know what in the world it was about. It was just May Day. And the fact that it was spring and that it had to do with a goddess of fertility and all of that, I didn't know, but it sure was fun, you know, to cut out that colored paper and weave a basket. It was, it was interesting for a kid to make a basket out of paper with a pair of scissors and some paste. A lot of fun. So when Easter came along, I thought for years that rabbits laid eggs. I could see rabbits hopping along, you know, jelly beans coming out. And uh, I didn't know. I thought rabbits laid eggs. I, I guess I had to ask when I got old enough, do rabbits lay eggs? I didn't know. I assumed they did. Uh, I never saw a rabbit. Never mind, I won't belabor that, but I never saw a rabbit born. I know that, so I assume that they, they probably laid eggs. So I wanted to be just like the world. And I found that the world is very powerful. It is organized. I found out that even here in Texas, it's very powerful, very organized. People in God's church understand that they have the liberty of enjoying a beverage which may contain a natural element that is in the sap of every tree, that is in every dandelion stem, every blade of grass, and every growing living thing that is vegetable in nature called alcohol as long as they imbibe it in moderation and do not go too far and get 
drunk, which the Bible condemns and says is a sin, a sin of excess. But here in Texas, they have what are called blue laws. And some of them, I mean, you cannot believe. If you were to go get a copy of the blue laws and to see items that they have put on there by the hundreds that cannot be sold in certain areas, it's not just alcoholic beverages, but it's unbelievable. In many places, they will not sell you a drink before 12 noon on Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. You can't get drunk till 12 o'clock. And in many states, they actually have, like in Oklahoma and sometimes county by county and sometimes state by state, like Oregon, Minnesota, Oklahoma, you go into a, into a grocery store, you cannot buy regular beer. They have a can and it says 3.2. So the idea, of course, all the do-gooders and all the people, the Baptists and everybody lining up and trying to vote in the voting booth to get this in, actually write it into the law based upon their anti-alcohol stand. I guess it just assumes that, you know, nobody's going to drink two instead of one. People do. They buy three, two beer and drink twice as much. But that's exactly what it's all about. It's a ready-made world. You did not design it, but it's all out there. It's very powerful. Its influence is all-encompassing, and the social institutions are very large, and they're quite powerful, and you find yourself pretty much required to do as those around you are doing. So when Paul was writing to these Gentiles about them turning back to weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage, you, that is, you Gentiles, observe days. And oh, did they ever. Lucky and unlucky, propitious and unpropitious, dark and mysterious and bright and ebullient. I mean, they had all kinds of ideas about days. And months, certain months of the year were unlucky. And of course, to this day, we know that women like to be a June bride. Nobody seems to investigate why. Well, because Juno was the goddess of sex and fecundity. And because a June bride's probably going to get pregnant quicker than an April or a May bride. But they don't know that, so everybody wants to be a June bride, because I guess it's uh, the beginning of summer. I don't know, but they don't understand, and they haven't looked back to find out. But they had those months. And times. Now, times are condemned under necromancy and seances and so on in the Old Testament, and they were called observers of times, and it had to do with witchcraft. Now, that has to do basically with astrology. That's astrological phenomena, and when God said, Be not dismayed by the signs of the heaven and the seasons and so on and progression, yet the pagan religions all had to do with the progression of the seasons. And so times were seasonal things like the Saturnalia and the Solstice and the Brumalia. In other words, Christmas, Easter, and New Year's. Those are the times of this society. And years. I am afraid of you. Now, the way these false guides read it, I'm afraid of you Gentiles. You want to go back and keep the Jewish Sabbath. Did you hear what I said? I'm afraid of you Gentiles. You want to go back and keep the Jewish Sabbath. I mean, that's the way they actually preach to people and people sit there so stupid that they actually think that's what the Gentiles were trying to do. The last thing in the world they wanted to do was to adopt Judaism. They wanted to be converted and be Christians and get into the kingdom of God. But nobody in the first century or the second century until the beginning of the third century ever questioned the weekly Sabbath day. They never questioned it. It was automatic. They knew that was the day that Almighty God had made holy and was the day on which men went to church and observed God's law and went for Bible studies and fellowship and prayer. And they did not question it. No, Gentiles could not be returning to something they'd never done, never heard of, and given short shrift, never paid any attention to in their entire lives. These are Gentiles. He didn't want them returning to Diana and Asclepios and Thor and Zeus and unlucky days. He's not talking about God's annual holy days or the weekly Sabbath. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech ye, be as I am. Now, I could follow that line of reasoning, and we could be here for another hour before I ever got away from that. And I'd have to show you how Paul taught the Gentiles in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5. Let us therefore keep the feast, not with the leavened bread of malice and so on, but with the unleavened bread of truth. I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. I am hasting, if it is possible, to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Luke writing of Paul, now when the fast was passed, and the margin says, Day of Atonement, Acts 27 and verse 9. And sailing was therefore dangerous, etc., etc. Did Paul keep the Sabbath? Absolutely. Go to the book of Acts. 
Wherefore, they asked if they could come back and hear more of the Word of God. And so when the Sabbath, when the uh, Jews had left and the Gentiles said, we would hear more of this, they met together the next Sabbath day. He could have said, oh, well, you Gentiles, now that the Jews are gone, you just come back tomorrow. But no, they waited the whole week. So we could wade through and we could see, how was Paul? What did Paul preach and teach and believe? And what did he write and say about the Sabbath and the law and the annual holy days? And he says, be as I am. For I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. And I won't go through the rest of that, but that is the real explanation of those verses. Now let's go very quickly through some scriptures, and I'm going to really have to move rapidly. In Matthew 5 and verse 17, I've said for years that I think oftentimes people look into the Word of God to see what God says don't do and do it. Don't think and think it. Think not and they think yes. And so Christ says here in the fifth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you think. I wonder how many millions of Christians there are that are prepared to obey what Christ says. That I am come to destroy the law. And literally tens of millions of people are convinced he did. And they're blind guides quoting those very scriptures that are ambiguous. You do need the background. You do need all the other scriptures we're about to read, which are actually only a fraction of those that are complete in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on the subject of God's law. And a thorough knowledge of the Bible to be really prepared to answer the arguments that they can cleverly concoct around Ephesians 2 and Colossians 4 and Galatians 3. And they are clever. But notice what it says. Think not I am come to destroy the law. And they think he did. Or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to destroy. You see, it doesn't make sense, does it? Because it says to fulfill. And so they argue. He did them. He fulfilled them. Therefore, they're gone. What does it mean to fulfill? If I ask you to perform a certain task, and I say, I would like you to be my yard man for the remainder of my natural life every Monday at 10 o'clock, and you fulfill your obligation. So next Monday you come and then you don't ever show up again. No, it is a lifelong commitment. When you fulfill, you fill up. You do or you perform. What did Christ do? He did or he performed the law, and it says he set us an example that we should follow in his steps. Destroy and fulfill are not synonyms. They are antonyms. They are opposites. They are not synonyms or synonymous. Destroy is destroy, and fulfill is to do or to perform, to set an example. In Matthew 4 and verse 4, right across the page, he answered and said unto Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what is every word of God? Well, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, every one of God's laws, and of course all of the New Testament as well. Matthew 19:17. I've mentioned this on the television program many times. One came, now remember that I said, if you went down here to the Green Acres Baptist Church and you said, Good pastor. What good thing may I do that I may have eternal life? He would pat you on the head and say, Child, sister, brother, there's nothing you need to do. Christ did it for you. He's taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to his cross. Did Christ take a stepladder and take the scroll in which are contained the Ten Commandments and mount up the stepladder and have some nails in his mouth and a hammer, a claw hammer at his belt, and take the Torah and put it up here and nail it to the cross? Is that what people think that Scripture means? That he nailed it to his cross? What was nailed to the cross? First place, it was not a cross. That's another subject. The Greek word is stauros, and it means stake. And the Bible says stake, upright, pale, or tree, meaning a tree trunk. And he hung with the arms stretched well above the head, which constricted the esophagus. And when they broke the legs, it was to strangle the victim because they could no more heave themselves aright to breathe. That's another subject, and it's covered very thoroughly in Bullinger's Companion Bible in connection with any of the scriptures having to do with the crucifixion. And the Greek word stauros has no etymological connection whatsoever to the Latin word crux any more than automobile has to microphone. They just have no common origin whatsoever. Crux in Latin, staurus in Greek, staurus or stauro means upright stake having nothing to do with a cross member. The word cross is not in the Bible. It was added by translators who perverted the Greek and changed it into a Latin word crux that is not implied by the Greek word stauro. Fact. All right. 
Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Christ denying the title of good in the human flesh, and yet all of us would call him good, but it certainly shows his humility. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. The only set of laws in the entirety of the Word of God that are called the commandments are the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He said, which? And Jesus began to expound certain of the Ten Commandments. He is not limiting it by saying these are the only ones that now apply. He just said commandments, plural, and that is a term that means them all. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Notice how he skips around in the way that he puts them together here, picking some from the end of the Decalogue and some from the middle of it. And the young man said, These I have kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And he was offered a discipleship and went away sorrowful. And that is when Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 28 and verse 20, I won't turn to, but it said that he commissioned them to go and to preach and to teach everything that he had taught them to observe. Luke 22:19 on the Passover, when he said, This do as I have done unto you. So they're to teach and to preach that you are to do what Christ did. Luke 6, 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall in any wise enter the kingdom of my Father, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Mark 2, verse 26 and 7. Let's look at that one right quickly. He said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made because God rested and he was not finished creating, he was just finished working. He entered all his work, and he rested, which is an act that created holy time, and blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it, and when he wrote the Decalogue with his own finger, he said, Remember the Sabbath day, and I proved to you last week that the Sabbath day was binding on the Israelites long before Sinai, and that God was actually carrying out the death sentence for Israelites who broke the Sabbath commandment prior to the giving of the Decalogue on Sinai, Exodus 16 to 18. It's there, before Exodus 20. The Sabbath was something that was made. It was made for who? For the Jews? No way. For man. Long before there was a human being ever given the nickname Jew, which was Judah's nickname, and not man for the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is not a yoke of bondage. It is a beautiful, wonderful day of great freedoms, privileges, and liberties for God's people to assemble, to worship, to enjoy the out-of-doors, to picnic, to be out on a lake somewhere enjoying it, to be in church, to be in Bible study, to be in prayer, to be with your family and your friends, to worship God, exalt and enjoy nature, enjoy music, enjoy God's Word, enjoy the day, drink in of the day and see its meaning. It's made for us, for our use, and not us, for its use. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. I asked a Church of Christ minister after a campaign sermon of mine over in Monroe, Louisiana, came up to me arguing about the Sabbath. I said, if I can turn to a scripture right here in the Word of God before you and show you that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath and show you that Christ said He is Lord of the Sabbath, will you keep it? He said, no, I won't. I said, end of discussion, and I left. It was very clear. No, I won't. Honest answer. He's not concerned about what's in the Word of God. He didn't care. But he isn't going to give up his tradition. That church pays him a salary to preach on Sunday. Let's notice another one in Mark 7, 5 through 9. A lot of times people pass over these little scriptures very, very quickly. But this is showing exactly what some of the weak and beggarly elements are. And some of the, not the weak and beggarly elements applying to the Gentiles, but at least some of the book of the law and the traditions that were added to the laws of Moses. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, verse 5 of Mark 6, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? That is, not grubby, dirty hands, but ceremonially unclean hands. They didn't go through the ceremony of hand washing. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." And laying aside the commandment of God, what is he enjoining upon them? Don't lay it aside. Observe it. Keep it. You hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things you do. 
And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God. And that was wrong. That was error. That was sin. So on the other hand, what should they have done? They should have accepted it, believed it, and obeyed it, that you may keep your own tradition. Acts 5 and verse 32 says that the Holy Spirit is given unto them that obey Almighty God. Romans 2 and verse 13. Let's turn to some of these New Testament scriptures right quickly, and I've got to hurry. It may go just a little bit over the hour. Sorry about that, but I do want to get most of these in if I can. Romans 2 and verse 13. And there's a great deal here that I've got to actually eliminate, but I've got at least 20 more, and I probably can't begin to cover them all. Let's look at some of the most cogent. Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, justification has to do with the removal of past guilt. Grace and forgiveness is pardon that is undeserved and unearned. And from that time on, we are to be living by faith because only Christ can help us to obey the points of his Ten Commandments. We cannot do it in our own strength. Romans 2, 21 and 25 says this, Thou therefore which teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You that preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? What is he enjoining upon them? The keeping of God's Ten Commandments. Notice verse 25. For circumcision verily profits if you keep the law, but if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. What is he enjoining upon them? Keeping the law. Circumcision doesn't make any difference as he proves elsewhere. But he is saying that if you keep the law, that's fine. But if you break the law... If you're even if you're circumcised, you may as well not be, because you're a lawbreaker. He's enjoining upon them the keeping of the Ten Commandments of God. Romans 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I call it a road map. It points out what is sin, what we should do, what we should not do. The law merely decides and tells you what is sin. He says a little later on in this same chapter, verse 30, Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, Jew and or Gentile, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. The fourth chapter of the book of Romans. Let's notice a few very important verses. Verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to them only that is of the law, or that, to that, that which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is called the father of the faithful. I want you to notice in the sixth chapter and verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? What is sin? The breaking of God's Ten Commandments. That grace may abound. God forbid. We're not to continue in sin. He says, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And a little later on in the same sixth chapter, verse 12, he says, Let not sin, therefore, what is sin? The breaking of the Ten Commandments. If you do not let it reign in your mortal body, what are you doing? You're keeping the Ten Commandments. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. In the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, Skipping along, there are many very important verses that I'm having to miss here. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it was, except that the law had told me what it was, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead, that is, in his conscience or his life. I was alive without the law once, that is, his mind, his conscience didn't trouble him, even though he was breaking God's laws. But when the commandment came, that is, came to his mind, came to be understood, sin revived, he saw it for what it was and all of its ugliness, and I died, meaning I gave myself unconditionally to God, and Christ died for me, and my death now is put down in heaven as if the law claimed my life, but only in and through Christ. Paul writes in very beautiful and sometimes ambiguous language, but that's the meaning of that verse. Verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. He's not doing away with the Ten Commandments. Verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual, and I am carnal, sold under sin. 
and in verse 18, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The good that I would do, I do not. The evil that I wouldn't do, that I do. Now, if I do that I don't want to do, it is no more I that do it, but sin that is dwelling or living inside of me. I find it a law, a principle, then, that when I want to do good, evil is present at hand. We can all absolutely understand that. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, and the inward man is that new creature in Christ being renewed day by day that is heading toward the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that spiritually, in my mind, in my heart, that part of me that is going to survive and live on into God's kingdom, that I delight in God's law. And yet people want to accuse the Apostle Paul of being the major person who annihilated God's law. He didn't have that authority, but he certainly did not do that. I won't go through the rest of that, but verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. Does the Baptist pastor down at Greenacres? Does the Church of Christ minister? Does the Campbellite Church of Christ minister? Does a hard shell or a so-called soft shell Baptist? Do Methodists, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, would they all write with Paul and say, Therefore, I myself serve the law of God? No way will they do that. Would Dr. DeHaan, he's long since dead, the man that wrote the book that I talked about in the first of the sermon, would he say, I serve the law of God? Paul did. And if we're Christians, that's the way we should feel about it and what we should be able to say. There are many more scriptures on the Ten Commandments, but let me just skip ahead to 1 John 2. There are many in the book of Hebrews, other places I would like to go, Hebrews 4 on the Sabbath. But for running out of time here, let me go to 1 John, the second chapter, verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know Him. People on television are always saying, Oh, it's so nice to know the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to know the Lord today? Oh, to know the, the Lord. Honk if you know Jesus, says the bumper sticker. But going down the road of honking. It's kind of ridiculous. And they know the Lord. Well, let's see if they know this. Hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Do they know Him if they break the Sabbath? No. He will say to them, as He says very clearly, I will tell them in that day, I don't know who you are or where you came from. And they're clamoring to get into God's kingdom. But haven't we preached and haven't we uh, said all these things and done all these mighty works? And weren't you right there in our streets? I will confess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that do what? Ye that break my law. Ye that work iniquity. What is iniquity? Lawlessness. The breaking of God's Ten Commandments. He that saith, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Very plain scripture. Now, you see what I'm talking about when I talk about the rules of Bible study of plain, incontrovertible, cast-in-concrete, etched-in-stone scriptures which are impossible to misinterpret help you understand those such as Ephesians 2 and Colossians 4, which at first blush may appear to be a little bit vague and ambiguous. So you understand them in the light of all of the many, many plain scriptures, and there are many of them. A couple of three more right quickly before we conclude. First John 3 and verse 22. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. First John 5, 3. This is the love of God. God is love. We talk about God's love, and we should have the love of God. How does he define it? This is the love of God. If we keep his commandments, what's the first one? Have no other gods before him. And the second one, not to make a graven image or an idol. And the third one, don't ever take his name in vain. Use it in awe as great and precious and holy. And the fourth one, remember this beautiful Sabbath day to keep it holy. And if you do those things, no other gods... Don't take his name in vain. Never worship before an idol, whether it's called Buick, private home with a swimming pool, salary, position, friend, or family, because you can make an idol of anything. Covetousness, which is idolatry, things you covet can become idols. That, together with the Sabbath day, is love toward God. And then the, re the remainder of the commandments, how to conduct yourself toward your neighbor, your friend, your servant, your business associate, your own wife and husband, your children. And that's loving them and loving your neighbor. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And no matter what they tell you at the Green Acres Baptist Church, his commandments are not grievous. And they make millions think they are. With the clever little twists they put 
on the verses I gave you at the beginning of this sermon. At the conclusion of the entire Bible, in Revelation 22 and verse 14, and while you're turning that, I'm going to read one in Revelation 12:17, which is the description of the final remnants of God's true church at the time of the Great Tribulation, heavenly signs, and day of the Lord. And how is that church described? The, the dragon, Satan the devil, was wroth with the woman, the true church of God, and went to make war with the remnant, the last fragments of true Christians on this earth, of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony that's the gospel as well as all the preaching of Jesus Christ. The 22nd chapter of Revelation, and it says this, verse 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. They can't earn it, but they do have a right to it, and may enter in through the gates into the city. From Genesis, Genesis 25 and verse 6, Because that Abraham obeyed my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, he confirmed his promises. To Revelation chapter 22 verse 14, the Ten Commandments are enjoined upon Christians. And you will never get into God's kingdom unless you obey them, because God will never save a single person that he cannot rule.